Hello, and welcome to Pianotech Radio Hour, the weekly bridge to the future of the Pianotech community. I'm David Anderson. And I'm Ethan Janney. And we're here to ask great questions, and then we'll shut up and listen to some of the authorities, experts, and most outstanding personalities in our little world of pianos. So, put on your best set of headphones, and let's get started. Welcome to the Pianotech Radio Hour on a bright and happy Saturday. How are you people doing? We're doing fine. We're happy to be here. We're happy to have everybody. We're especially happy to have El Fondrick with us. He's an amazing human. And uh, we'll get into his actually somewhat controversial <laughs> takes on things a little bit later. Here's my partner, Ethan Janney. Yeah, welcome everyone. I'll give a little short intro to Dell, and um, and then uh, and then we'll jump in to to talk with him. Um, you should be able to chat in the chat, so feel free to do that and give your questions. We also got a few questions beforehand, which is great. So Dell Foundrich, uh, since 1960, Dell has evolved from a basic service technician to an independent rebuilder, manufacturer, and design consultant. He served as an R&D specialist with Baldwin and consultant to brands like Charles Walter and Young Chang. He continues to lecture globally as one of the most forward-thinking minds in the piano industry, maintaining several active research projects in his workshop in Olympia, Washington. Dell, welcome to Piano Tech Radio Hour. Good morning. And I'll also just tell our, our listeners um, that Piano Tech Radio Hour is brought to you by Piano Tech Missions Masterclasses, an online educational resource that offers you cutting-edge instruction from piano industry masters without leaving your home. Dell is uh, one that we have had a couple of classes with. You can find out more about that at www.pianotechniciansmasterclass.com slash PTM2020. David, you got a question you want to launch with? So an article that Dell first published... I think in 2015, is that correct, Del? Uh, 13. 13. Called, Where Do We Go From Here? And uh, I reread it, and I was fascinated because he's a diehard proponent of there being really good, small, light, uh, fully functional, and actually well-made acoustic pianos and he further says that he feels that these pianos could cause not a revolutionary change but a big change in the american piano buying public if the, they're priced correctly and he's got a lot of ideas about how the piano business has kind of started hibernating in the innovation department so can you tell us Dell? What this kind of hibernation or sleepiness in the worldwide piano business as far as innovation goes means on a big picture? What does it mean to the piano business business now? Well, the, the incentive for me for the article was coming back from a NAM show uh, in 2012 or 2013, and just being very disappointed, very apprehensive, 
uh, it was one of those years I didn't bother taking a camera because I didn't anticipate there being anything worth taking a picture of. And it turned out I was correct. You could walk from exhibit to exhibit to exhibit and see essentially the same pianos dressed up in different colors, perhaps with different leg styles. But we were really offering the buying public the same thing in many different um, clothing formats. And it reminded me of the years in, uh, in my past when uh, I observed General Motors doing the same thing. They called it badge engineering, where they would take one platform and put five or six or seven different badges on it, changing only the aesthetic slightly, a few different body panels, a different grill, different upholstery, but it would be the same car. And it cost GM dearly that nearly bankrupted the company. It got the CEO whose bright idea it was fired. Uh, and I thought that, you know, a revolution like that is really overdue in the piano business. So on my way back, I was thinking of, in the best of my possible worlds, what would I like to see? does little good to complain if you don't have at least a few answers. So I came up with five different areas that I thought we could profitably address. Starting with, with aesthetics. Small pianos in particular all look alike. They're bulky. They're not, they're not really, we don't really have small pianos. We have short pianos. And there's quite a difference between the two. Some of the very short pianos, especially those are in the four foot 11 to five foot range, their pianos are at least about as wide as they are long. That is not an attractive shape. I learned this back at Baldwin when I was designing a, uh, a very short piano for the company. It was supposed to be four foot 11. And we assembled some uh, some mock-ups, we made some shapes, and had people look at them. And the overwhelming favorites were those that were a little narrower, uh, a little bit more slender, and in a short piano, an inch or so means a lot. So aesthetics is one. We uh, The pianos in, in my article, the widest of those, the, the two widest, show the range of contemporary short pianos from the narrowest that I could find to the widest that I could find. And I contrast that with a drawing that I made showing how wide a piano of that length really needs to be. And this is nothing dramatic. We're not reinventing the very early chickering quartergrands, which were impossible to work on. This is a, a conventional action, a conventional set of keys, conventional scaling. It just has the fat taken out of it. And you can see the difference in the, in the, uh, the size and the shape. So that's one area we could, I think, profitably address. Taking that, taking that uh, in a slightly different direction and going to the next, uh, the next slide, I think. Yeah, that one. That shows 
the difference between a four foot 11 grand piano and this piano actually exists out there in, in the piano world someplace. It's quite wide. It's short, four foot 11. And, uh, it takes up, uh, to 1.89 square meters of space. The longer piano is 165 centimeters, uh, five foot five, make, using the same principles, nothing dramatic, nothing, uh, terribly, we don't have to reinvent anything. We just have to start with a clean, well, we used to say a clean sheet of paper. Now it's a, a, a blank computer screen. And we draw a modern grand piano that is uh, five foot five inches in length and actually takes up less floor space than the shorter piano. Now, my question is, which one would fit better in most small living rooms? The one that sticks well, the, the, that sticks well out into the middle of the floor because it's so wide or the one that takes up just to, just a little bit more wall space gives you the advantage of longer longer bass string scale, uh, a better acoustical shape, so higher performance all around, probably no more expensive to build, and yet would offer the buyer a lot more in the way of piano. Dale, do you know of any pianos that are being currently being manufactured any place in the world that has either copied or adapted or adopted this narrower, longer length for a, quote, small piano? To my great disappointment, no. Hmm. And I think there's a reason for that. For one thing, piano makers tend to be very traditional in their outlook. No modern piano maker who is building smaller pianos for a anything larger than a um, a very elite very select market they're not run by technical people they don't have a concept of what it takes to draw a piano scale or to design anything other than a business plan so in, if you go back into the early days of the piano business, whether it's in America and Europe, pianos were run by piano people, by piano fanatics. And you see the diversity of pianos coming along in those areas. Not all of them were practical, and the impractical ones dropped out. But there was innovation going on continually. That innovation stopped. Uh, we just don't see it. You know, the only in innovations we really have now are in the realm of manufacturing. Most of the piano shapes we see came from the 1910s, 1920s, when pianos were purchased to go into large homes. Bigger was better. Aesthetically, uh, you wanted something big. It was a proof to your neighbors that you were, you were in the money. You were, you were okay. But if you've looked at furniture styles over the last hundred years, they've changed. We don't see much of that anymore. We see Scandinavian shaker styles. We see slender, thinner, lighter scale furniture, except for the piano. 
which has remained thick and bulky. So would this revolutionize the piano business and bring it back to the roaring 20s? Of course not. But it would help some manufacturers who chose to be more competitive. No, I don't know of any that are done because I don't know that the capability exists in most high-production modern factories to do it. Quick question, or just to clarify for people who are participating here, it it appears to me that one of the major things that would be different there is the the cheek block size on the edges of the piano would be limited. Is that is that something that would be a result of this modification? Well, it starts at the beginning. You can't just make a change like that. I mean, you have to tighten up on the what's called the uh, the action centers, the spacing of the hammer shanks uh, next to each other. So you reduce the width of the hammer scale slightly. Uh, you have to build a new rim press. And I have been astonished at how uh, formidable a task that seems to a company. Oh, build a new rim press. Well, you know, I built a new rim press in my workshop. Uh, which I've it, seen, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> it's, it's rather sophisticated. Uh, it's air operated. Uh, you know, this isn't rocket science. Um, so it, it needs an understanding of how the piano works and how the piano is laid out, which is lacking. Most, most modern manufacturers know very, very little about the piano. Uh, I, I hate to say that, but it's sadly true. They know about manufacturing, and that's quite different. So that was just one of the things. Performance is another. And in you know, large, very frightfully expensive pianos are great. They're, they're just wonderful instruments. We sit down, we tune them, we marvel at them. But those aren't pianos that average people can buy. Pianos that average people can buy are somewhat less than pleasing, particularly when you get to short pianos. And we all know the complaints. Uh, gnarly basses, rough bass tenor breaks, uh, unresponsive overall sounds. And those are all things that are fairly easily fixed if the manufacturer knows what to do. We have a long way to go in developing uh, soundboards for all pianos, not just small pianos. The days of building solid Sitka spruce soundboards for pianos is, is drawing to a close. We're not, we're simply not going to be able to do it much longer. The wood is running out. Do you mind if I pop in a question here that came from people before? So, so, and we'll do this in the future. We sent out uh, an inquiry before the event so that people could email us questions that they might feel is relevant to the discussion to optimize the time available. We'll also be taking questions in the Zoom chat, of course. Um, but I'll read this question that was submitted by Tim Michaels. And just to preface, on last week's ins- installment, uh, we talked to Rick Overton, who's a piano dealer, the topic of shifting some of the outsourcing from China in back into the United States came up. Dell expressed an opinion on that, that that's, that's probably not likely. Um, but here's another <laughs> take on the question, which might have a slightly different answer. So Tim Michael says, according to a Pew Research Center poll released a few days ago, 66% of Americans have negative views of China. 
would it not make sense to return to places like Mexico? Baldwin and Kimball once had factories there and Canada for piano parts and assembly if it is not economical to do it entirely in the U.S. It seems many consumers probably wouldn't mind paying a little extra for a North American piano made with parts from Canada, U.S. and Mexico, considering the growing negative sentiment regarding China. And then I'll add after that, because there might be something to add to the discussion, you know, I'm not aware of what are the opportunities for manufacturing outsourcing in the rest of Central and Latin America. Um, so do you have an opinion or any knowledge on that, Del? Oh, I have opinions about almost everything. Yeah. Even. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> whether they're already good or not is another issue. Uh, Perfect. Opinions, public opinions about things like China come and go. Uh, I can remember, uh, not in, in my past when, uh, the same sentiments were expressed toward Japan, uh, and toward Korea. And now, now we're down on China. Those things shift. But, uh, in answer to the question, more specifically, it's going to be a matter of really two things, I think. One is, Will a company be willing to invest in the machinery necessary to build a modern, relatively low-cost piano? When it looked like China was going to be, well, first, first it was, uh, first it was Japan because Japan labor rates were low and pianos could be built inexpensively in Japan. That era fairly rapidly came to an end as Japanese labor rates went up and as much as the Japanese thought in in terms of future and built good competent machinery uh it still became cost prohibitive so then we went to Korea and Korea for a while was the low cost uh source for pianos that also fairly quickly came to an end and it went to China and all all along, machinery is getting better and better. Things that in America would take uh, hours or sometimes days were built in a matter of minutes. If anybody's been in a modern piano factory and seen how a skeleton goes together, for example, something that that took great amounts of time in America takes minutes. The the skeleton goes on a CNC machine. Uh, mortises are dovetails are cut for the, for the belly rails, the, or the belly bracing. Belly bracing is done someplace else. That's all cut by machine. And all the worker really has to do is pick, pick up the subassembly and tap it into place with some glue. So that helps the cost picture a lot. But even with that, pianos are labor intensive. So, uh, labor costs become an issue. Labor costs in China are going up. People want a higher life, a higher standard of living. They want more money. They move around a lot from one company to another to make a better salary for themselves and their families. So the shift away from China is already underway in many industries. And I expect it will be in pianos as well. It's going to go to other developing countries depending on where capitalists can find some people to exploit. Mexico, I think, is beyond that. Uh, Mexican labor is less than it is in America, but it's 
it's much higher than it is uh, in China or in Indonesia or Vietnam or Cambodia. Uh, it, it, it's hard to say just how that would work in Mexico. Uh, I have limited experience working in Mexico. When I was director of R&D for Baldwin, I made some trips down there. Mexican labor was was good, but in our case, the machinery was completely antiquated. So there, it was very unlikely that anything of, of even relatively high quality was going to come out of those factories. That was not the fault of the workers. It was the fault of the machinery and management. Well, somebody sent in a question about the future of spruce boards, whether they're whole wood or laminates versus carbon fiber. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, I've mentioned before that the days of solid spruce soundboards are limited. We'll continue to see them in the very, very expensive pianos, but other than that, an interim step will be laminated boards, which is almost universal now in China. And done properly is a good interim step. Composites will ultimately make their inroads. I don't believe it'll be carbon fiber. I think it's a very poor choice of materials for piano soundboards. And uh, and this is based on some some testing that I've done and the, the big issue is it basically it's uh, damping factor. If we were inventing the, t- the piano today, we had no, no preconception of what the piano should sound like. Then something like carbon fiber might be an excellent choice because we, we wouldn't be comparing it to anything else. But we do. We compare it to 300 years of tradition. Uh, only one or two of us are that old. But uh, we, we compare it to this tradition of a certain sound that depends on the very highest partials being damped out. And carbon fiber doesn't do that. It reproduces them very nicely. There are other composites that I think are going to prove in the long run to be much more suitable. Mostly they'll be based on natural fibers. Um, I have some, uh, I've done some experimental work with flax fibers. Uh, I haven't tried them yet, but uh, I have reason to believe that hemp fibers might work. The, the reason being that we don't need the extreme strength of carbon fiber, at least not in the soundboard. There's other places in the piano where it probably could be uh, exploited, but not in the soundboard. We don't typically load soundboards to physically that ex- that extent. It's just not necessary. So, so there are other fibers that I think will, will ultimately prove to be better suited to to be to be made into a successful transducer. Is there another type of wood that could be used for soundboards? And how would different wood affect the cost of a piano, for instance? Well, yes and no. Again, if we didn't have the tradition to go by, uh, sure, but we do. That's the advantage, incidentally, excuse me, of laminated soundboards in that you can use pretty much anything in the core 
in terms of, of color, um, physical flaws. Uh, so you can use a much lower grade of spruce. Um, other companies, for example, Baldwin, uh, in many of their laminated soundboards would use bass. And they were not great sounding pianos, but they were not great sounding pianos for a lot of reasons, not just the soundboard. So yes, other woods could be used. Traditionally, we like to look inside and we like to see that nice, pretty, even grain, even color spruce. Well, you can do that if you, if you laminate the board, you, you can at least stretch the supplies of, of musical instrument grade, uh, spruce over a longer period of time by, by slicing it very, very thin. Uh, in other words, you use two millimeters instead of, uh, eight or nine or 10 of, of good spruce. And then you use a larger amount of packing crate material. I would love to cut in here and just say a couple things. Um, so, you know, I connected with Dell in order to at first, in order to have him do a masterclass for piano technicians, masterclasses had the wonderful opportunity of actually being in his home, which is really cool. He's got this full basement workshop that, uh, you know, he gets to play around in despite his wife's protestations around, uh, keeping it more tidy, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a really cool place. And, and I said, I just wasn't familiar with what carbon fiber actually was. So I just want to communicate that to people or my understanding from what I learned from being in your workshop and seeing your experiments. I always kind of thought the carbon fiber was literally like, you know, a hardened fiber, like the actual the fiber was like, if I see a bike tube or something like that, that's carbon fiber, that it's just the carbon and it's just, you know, put together in a tube form or something like that. And what I learned from being in, in, in Dell's workshop that the actual carbon fiber, it literally looks like a piece of cloth before you do something with it. And what it's really used to do is to reinforce an existing structure. And so you literally just take this thing that feels like a piece of cloth, like a fancy napkin from a restaurant, except it's made of carbon fibers, and you put it around or along the face of something that you're trying to reinforce. And then there's various chemical bonding processes you put it on that and then it just really makes it stronger is that a good description of kind of how carbon fiber works yeah carbon fiber by itself is just fibers thread and it's fairly fragile actually it's, it's not all that all that uh, difficult to break it it's not until it's put into a matrix and typically some form of uh, specific epoxy or something similar and when it when the epoxy cures, it holds the carbon fiber rigid, and then you're able to get the panel strength that uh, it's famous for. Carbon fiber is very, very strong in tension. It's less so in compression. So you you have it, it's not quite as easy to use as some other materials. You you have to really kind of carefully engineer it for a specific purpose. So you talked earlier about you did you've done some limited experience with flax and perhaps hemp, correct? I'm looking for some hemp fibers. I have reason to believe that they could work well. And you know, I'm not a highly sophisticated researcher on this, partly because uh, it's really fairly budget intensive, and I don't have a huge budget to work with. 
so it, yeah, it's, it's difficult for me to get some of the samples that I would like to get. I, you have to, often you have to purchase fairly large quantities and I'm not prepared to do that. But, uh, so hemp is one I have not yet worked with, but I think that it has potential. What I've learned so far working and I've, I've made up panels, uh, just small pins so that I can test things like stiffness, speed of sound, damping factor. I've, I've used, uh, cotton, for example. I've used, uh, flax. Um, I haven't found enough jute to really form an opinion yet. But there's, uh, my, my sense so far is that a more practical soundboard material will probably be made of some natural fiber rather than something like carbon. I've also uh, experimented with spruce, relatively thin spruce, and with very, very thin fiberglass cloth facings, uh, which is essentially a laminate, but instead of using a, 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 a wood veneer as the laminate on both sides, you use uh, fiberglass cloth. And the when it's wetted out, uh, with epoxy, the fiberglass cloth becomes essentially invisible. So you see what you see when you look in the piano is essentially a solid spruce board, but it's one that is much more stable, virtually impossible to crack, still looks like wood. So have you personally, can you tell us if there's any quantitative difference between the sound and sustain and resonance of a laminated board as opposed to a solid spruce board? So far, I believe that with creative engineering, we can probably come so close to duplicating the sound of wood that uh, when you say wood, which piano? Do you mean this piano over here or do you mean that piano over there? Because they don't sound the same. They sound quite different. Even even a row of five pianos from the same manufacturer, the same model number, they don't sound the same. Why? Because there's variability in wood. I mean, aside, even if you took the same action and you switched it from piano to piano to piano, they're going to sound quantitatively different. And uh, so, so you pick one. <laughs> which which one do you want it to sound like? I think one point I've heard you make before, which I think is interesting, is that the laminated soundboard itself has the unfortunate history of being introduced in cheaper pianos. And that there's this idea that, well, it's a cheaper piano with a cheaper laminated soundboard. And so, of course, it's not going to sound as good as a more expensive piano uh, without one. But also there hasn't been really much experimentation with really fine pianos with laminated soundboards. If I remember correctly, is that, is that right? That's essentially the, the correct. Yes. Go back to the wonderful and completely unlamented uh, story tone soundboards or the, the, the Kimball laminated soundboards from the fifties and sixties. I mean, it was garbage wood. It was, garbage design put into garbage pianos. How, how could you possibly expect this to sound great? So, but 
because they have laminated soundboards. Oh, well, laminated soundboard, they sound terrible. It's terrible. It's awful. Uh, it wasn't the laminated soundboard. It was the whole piano. The, the piano itself was junk. It's like the tires that we used to have in the the 50s and 60s, and they'd blow threads and they treads. You didn't go anywhere without a working spare because, you know, you just expected it. to. Oh, well, they were made out of rubber, so rubber's really bad. <laughs> we've, we've condemned uh, plastic actions the same way. Oh, plastic action. I had to replace plastic elbow. This stuff was just falling apart. Plastic actions are terrible. Well, tell Kauai that. They've been building them for over over 40 years now. And I, the last I heard, which was a few years ago, they might have had another failure by now, but uh, I, I think that Don Menino told me there was like had one failure and one whipping in 40 years. <laughs> That's a pretty good track record. Yeah, I was completely surprised that the glacially conservative piano business accepted WNG parts like whoosh, you know, like in four or five years, they were seen by many makers or many uh, rebuilders, artisan rebuilders around the world as this is the stuff I'm going to use now. So that was an anomaly for me in the piano business because there's so much judgment and 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 you know hearsay kind of evidence that for instance laminated boards are no good or chinese pianos are no good or that this is no good or that that is no good i owned a 1957 corvette it was the first year that an american manufacturer introduced a car with fuel injection it was a miserable system when it ran, it was really super, but I was always fixing that thing. So obviously, fuel injection is terrible. It'll never make it. It's just awful. It's an awful thing. You can't buy a car today without a very highly refined and superbly functioning fuel injection system. If all industries, if the auto industry played the game the way the piano business does, we'd still be driving cars with cranks. <laughs> I've got a question for you. I've got a question for you, Dell, because I, I think I remember you talking about this. Did you meet Ray Kurzweil at one point? Yeah. Okay. So let me preface this question. I'd love you to kind of follow up with any insights or experience. So for those listeners that don't know, Ray Kurzweil, Kurzweil is kind of a futurist fellow. He was one of the first that, you know, put together an electronic keyboard and tried to synthesize the the piano sound. And I feel like just reflecting on this is very apropos to our current situation. You know, he would probably have abandoned, I don't know if you talked to him today, probably abandoned the piano industry long ago. But what's interesting is that I... He did, actually. Yeah. And I see you, though, as as similarly a bit of a futurist, meaning that I hear you talk about things like, oh, look, all the spruce is going to be gone at a certain point. So we got to think this way. We got to think this way. So as someone, you know, with it, that still thinks forward thinking, but hasn't abandoned the piano industry, or maybe you have and you're just here to chat for a little bit, <laughs> but like, you know, <laughs> what's, what's your alternative? You know, why, where do you see hope? What, why do you enjoy still remaining in the piano industry? What do you see great about it and compare it? And if you can't tell that a little bit of that story, cause I think it's interesting of meeting him. Well, 
I remember Ray Kurzweil telling me in uh, something like 1980, the mid-1980s anyway, uh, that the piano industry was obsolete and uh, would be out of the picture entirely in another decade. Uh, in another decade, Kurzweil was purchased out of bankruptcy by Young Chang. People like acoustical pianos, and I, ha- I hate using that. Because pianos are pianos. Uh, but people like pianos because they they give a a visceral feedback that the the electronics can't really match. Electronics give other benefits. They they there's a lot of things that obviously you can do with a digital keyboard that you can't do with a piano. But but what we found, and I think that this is still true, is that people who bought digital pianos instead of pianos, ultimately wanted to go back to the piano for what the piano would give them. I see the market for large pianos uh, as as a very limited one. I mean, there's not going to be a, a large market for those anymore. We have no more middle class. It's gone. So unless we reset our economy and go about rebuilding a middle class, those folks aren't going to be buying big pianos. But so I see a potential future in supplying smaller by smaller. I mean, smaller, not shorter, but, but more aesthetically pleasing, lighter weight, longer lived pianos. You know, we've only begun to, uh, in fact, I don't think we have begun yet to explore the interplay between what could be possible with a, for example, a hybrid, an acoustical piano that, that is supplemented by electronics. And by this, I mean, who is it? It's either Rogers or maybe, uh, Alan or both that sell hybrid pipe organs where the smaller pipes, the higher pitch pipes are actually pipes, air-operated pipes. But when it comes to the lower frequencies where the pipes, the, the size of these things just gets humongous, they blend into an electronic base with large subwoofer speakers, which works quite well. Why not take a, a smaller, shorter piano, like, for example, the 5'5 five five that I talked about? The mid-range and treble would stand by itself against almost anything it's there's no reason why you can't make the mid-range and treble of a short piano or a small piano sound at least as good as as a mid-sized seven foot piano where the shorter piano is deficient is in the low bass we can make the low bass more clear but what if we simply supplemented it if we took that sound and added to it so that we could simulate a longer piano sound and yet have a, have a piano. I, I, yeah. I'm just kind of speculating here. I don't know if that would work or not, but I also don't think anybody's tried it. Well, on, on hybrid pianos, but perhaps, but certainly not on a full acoustic. Well, why not start with a full acoustic piano and then integrate something with it? Uh, no, a- absolutely. I, I, I don't understand why it hasn't been tried. I'd love to see it tried. Yeah, I would too. So 
there's 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 one thing that people that I know, my colleagues in the piano business are talking about all the time. And it's a like really a two-part thing. Number one, really the heart and the the center of the piano business has in effect moved to China. All the major major manufacturers, all of the makers, European and American makers, have significant investments in in Chinese. Or uh, there's many parts on uh, Mason Hamlin and, and Steinway Piano Center that actually originate in China. So if you comment on that, and then whether you really feel that there's going to be any kind of low or middle end of the piano business in 10 or 20 years because of the rise of insanely useful digital instruments. Well, let me go back. One of the comments that Rick made last week was that the day of the six to $8,000 piano uh, being built in America, those days are over. And he's absolutely correct in that. Yeah. But I would say also that the day of the six to $8,000 vertical piano is almost over in China as well, simply because labor costs are going up. I wouldn't even waste my efforts on that. I, I think that part of the market is gone, but why couldn't there be a collaboration, for example, a Chinese company building in a short grant, say the one, the, the five foot five or the 165 that I showed, where a Chinese company would build the, the skeleton and furnish some, some case parts and send it over here to some enterprising shop or company that would furnish uh, a keyframe perhaps made in Germany a an action uh, made by Wessel Nickel Gross, uh, hammers from wherever, a uh, soundboard that they might make themselves out of a composite of some sort, string frame that could come from China. They do that sort of thing very well. In other words, the parts that are just kind of more blunt force and that lend themselves well to to highly automated manufacturing, uh-huh. bring those over. As long as 51% of the content, uh, and that's the, the cost, is done unless the law has changed. As long as it's done in the United States, it's a U.S.-built piano. Uh, the critical components, the parts that go into actually making the piano sound the way you want it to sound, are all done here. Would you be able to build a cheap piano that way? No, I don't think so. But you could certainly build a formidable mid, mid-market piano. Should we hop in and... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, let me say what I was going to say. Um, we do have a few questions in the chat, quite a few, but we can, we don't have a ton of time left either, but, uh, but let us, everybody let us know if we want to hop in and, and check some of those out. Did you have a thought to finish there though, Del? Well, I, I earlier read, uh, somebody had sent a question about how, how about building, well, I think the word was boutique pianos or something to that effect, uh, in America. I think there are piano rebuilding shops today in America that are fully capable of building new pianos. I don't think it would be successful to build a conventional piano, but for example, flat strung pianos. Nobody's building a flat strung piano today. Why not? They have lots of, of potential 
advantages and very, very few disadvantages. Uh, I lament the fact that Chickering back in the late 1800s gave up on them. Uh, I've rebuilt a few of those and they can be gorgeous, spectacularly gorgeous instruments. I have a rim frame <laughs> or a, a rim press designed for that purpose. So I think that there are shops in America that are fully capable of building their own grand pianos and doing it extremely well. Thanks for that. Um, I will, uh, I'll, I'll just hop in and I'll shoot through some of these questions here. Um, and we got about 10 minutes left. It's been great so far. Thank you so much for all your insights, by the way. I have a question from Larry Lobel. Dell, have you done much thinking about experimenting with alternate alternate pin block designs and materials? This would apply to your suggestion that pianos need to be made more stable and thus easier and cheaper to maintain. Not a lot. That isn't really an area where we have much trouble. Pianos don't go out of tune because pin blocks are not stable. I do prefer open face pin blocks because I don't like the big gap between the, uh, the string and the top of the block. But no, I haven't uh, looked that much at alternative. And next question from David Brown. In Piano Tone Building, which is a book that you uh, facilitated, uh, bringing up back archives of some, uh, I'm, I'm interjecting that, bringing up some old archives of, of piano technician meetings long ago, you talk about how long earlier manufacturers expected pianos to last. Can you expand on the modern buyer's dealer and manufacturer's expectations of the longevity of individual pianos? Well, ironically, I don't think modern consumers expect their products to last as long as they did back in the early days of the piano. We buy a television set, it becomes eclipsed by modern technology, we discard it, we buy another. Piano longevity has been aided by the fact that that almost nothing has been done to move them beyond the, the designs of the early 1900s, early 20th century. Uh, we have no reason to go shopping for a new piano because what we see on the showroom floor is just like the one we have at home. People are, I think, increasingly concerned with uh, reliability. We buy a TV set. We don't expect to call a TV technician to come in and align it like we had to do in years past. We buy a car. We don't expect to, re- to have to... Uh, regrind the valves in 50,000 miles like we did when I bought my first cars. We buy a piano, it needs frequent tuning, it needs frequent action regulation, it needs frequent a lot of things. Uh, I can envision a piano made with composites, composite soundboard, at least a composite reinforced rim that would stabilize it, perhaps using just more, more laminates, which are inherently more stable. A Wesselnickel gross action that would be essentially maintenance-free for at least a period of several years. And then, okay, you call the technician, they come out, they tune it, they touch up the regulation a little bit, and you're good for another two or three years. I think that that would be a good selling point for a consumer piano. 
And just just to add on top of that, it sounds like a piano like that, what you would mostly be avoiding is the tuning and regulation part of it. It seems like, and I'm I'm seeing this trend that there's increasingly that voicing is a skill that is still the domain of you know, what a piano, what a good piano technician needs to know. So would, would a piano like that, that you're envisioning, like for the better players, it might need voicing, uh, but for the, for others, it could last for a while. Is that kind of the thought? Well, better players are always going to be more demanding. If you buy a Porsche, you're automatically assuming you're going to give it more maintenance than if you buy a Subaru. We have driven a Subaru for almost, what, eight years, I guess. Uh, we've done almost no maintenance to it. If I had purchased a Porsche, I would have expected to spend a lot more time in the shop uh, keeping it at that high level of performance. Um, hammers are really the biggest uh, issue, and I would love to see hammer makers finally learn how to make hammers most of them haven't. They make a hammer-shaped object, but uh, they lack the resilience. A well-made hammer that is that uses good felt, that is not overpressed, uh, that has good resiliency, that hammer is going to last pretty long. That's not to say a top-end pianist won't want it voiced, but a, a uh, an entry-level mid-range pianist could live happily with it over that period of time. There's an interesting question from Alan Eder. Wants me to ask you what the advantages of straight stringing or flat stringing are. I mean, is there tonal advantages? Or? Well, there certainly are tonal advantages at the transition point. Uh, there's always cross-coupling when you get to an overstrung uh, instrument where the motion of the, particularly motion of the bass strings is reflected in the motion of the tenor strings. But you can also, and this brings up a, another uh, potential market at least, and that is uh, there's a move to supply pianos with a, a narrower octave span for pianists with smaller hands. That is essentially impossible, at least in in practical economic terms, in modern grand pianos. In flat-strung pianos, you can make the the uh, the scale stick the the distance from uh, A1 to C88. You can make it much narrower, much shorter, which means that you can easily build a piano with, say, a five and a half or six-inch octave uh, span rather than the conventional six and a half-inch octave span, and that's another area that modern piano makers could and I think should be exploring. You should be able to purchase a at least a grand piano uh, with a at least a six-inch octave span keyboard for no more than a couple of hundred dollars over the, the cost of a, a conventional key set instead of the thousands that it will take if that's what you want to do now. So um, we've got three minutes left, and I just want to uh, – this was awesome. Yeah. We don't talk enough about, you know, quote, controversial or forward-looking things. And we could – man, I could uh, 
I got a lot of questions. I could uh, I could continue this for the next hour. Well, we can do it again. We'll do it again. <laughs> your relationship with Baldwin, your how how it was with Young Chang, and what's the challenges of an individual artisan going up against a whole bureaucratic deal, and just so many fascinating, interesting things. But you know, we got to stop. So, uh, Ethan, you want to take us out? Yeah, a couple of things. I just put a link in the chat to. Uh, the website basically where this, the video here is being streamed. If you're just watching the video um, that links in the chat here. And it's also, it's also in your email. If, if you've got a ticket to this, that's a place where you can sign up for piano technicians, masterclasses, full library. We got a couple of lectures from Dell within there. And, you know, I think it became apparent once again, as, as I think um, David has said before, the future of the pianos is in the high end you know, and knowing how to maintain pianos at a very high level. And um, I think that you'll find a lot of great content on that and piano technicians masterclasses. Um, and I also put in the chat there a feedback form where you can go to deliver your feedback. Th- very awesome. We got nearly 50 people gave us feedback on the last lecture. It was really wonderful stuff. We can't cover it all between one lecture to the next, but already implementing some things um, and bringing them to the table. So please share your feedback. We appreciate you being here. Um, appreciate all the thank yous coming in, in the chat as well. Any parting words from, from you, Dell? No, I've enjoyed the, the conversation. I, uh, it's a, it's a strange time. Uh, and I, I think what you guys are doing is excellent. It, you know, it kind of keeps the, keeps the community together a little bit. We can't meet in person. So this has to, be the next best thing until we can. Absolutely. And again, I want to say so grateful that people, that there's, you know, a couple hundred people here, 150 or whatever. It's just beautiful. It builds our community. It inspires us all. It enrolls us all into thinking bigger and thinking, thinking with more intentionality. And I'm, I'm just grateful that everybody's here. And uh, the clock on the wall says we got to go. All right. That's great parting words. I'm going to sign us off uh, a Facebook and then I'll, I'll stop the stream here on, uh, on zoom. Thank you all again, once again, for being here. Uh, we'll follow up with that feedback form and by email and, and love to hear what you have to say. We'll talk to you later. Thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time. Remember that you can catch us live online every Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. That's right. Go to pianotechradio.com to register so you can interact live and ask questions of our guests. See you next week.